This is Health Yeah, your weekly update on what's going on in the health, wellness, and medical world with Monica Robbins. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to Health Yeah, your prescription for clear, concise medical health and wellness information. I'm Monica Robbins. Full disclosure, in October of 2019, I had a craniotomy to remove a benign meningioma behind my left eye. I still have residual tumor left over back behind my eye, in my eye socket, on my optic nerve, and on my carotid artery that still needs to be monitored every six months with an MRI. So today, we're going to be talking about brain health and brain tumors because June is Brain Awareness Month. And who better to help me do that than my own neurosurgeon, Dr. Pablo Racinos from Cleveland Clinic. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here with you and, and your audience today, Monica. So we've got a lot to get through. So let's start with one of the biggest misconceptions about what a brain tumor is. They're not all the same, right? Can you explain the difference? Sure. Yeah. Everybody, when, when people get diagnosed with a brain tumor, as you well know, it can be a very emotional thing. But this is where where we come in and really evaluate the symptoms that, that people have and the imaging. And some tumors arise inside the brain. Some tumors arise around the brain. Some tumors are located deep within, others closer to the surface. And they are certainly not all the same. Uh, some, some of the brain tumors can be cancers and have a very aggressive course and are treated with uh, a whole wide range of therapies up front. Others may have uh, a more benign course, benign meaning that they're not cancerous and slow, uh, slow course. So really it, we, we, we take all those, um, take the combination of, of, of patient symptoms and why they presented in the first place and look at their imaging before we make a decision um, on how we recommend them to be treated. So our, are all brain surgeons the same? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> certainly. I think uh, within the, the the Cleveland Clinic, I'm very fortunate to to work with an outstanding group of colleagues, and we have slightly different areas that we specialize in. So some of my colleagues will will specialize more in in tumors inside the brain tissue. Uh, many of those are, are brain cancers, but not all. They will uh, use techniques, for example, as doing surgeries awake. They will map the function of the brain. So, and in order to be able to, to do uh, the safest surgery that's possible in those cases. I do a lot of skull-based surgery. So these, this is primarily for tumors that arise at the at the junk uh, where the, the 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 brain space meets the nose or meets the spine, many of these tumors are are tend to be benign, although not all of them are, and the considerations are different. Maximizing the the amount of tumor that we can remove, but at the same time, having a a very critical focus on maintaining the quality of life of the patient, minimizing the amount of complications that, that we can get, whether it's from vision, from eye movements, from sensation to the face, hearing, etc. So there's, of course, brain surgeons that do a lot of uh, a varied practice. But I think when you get to places like the, the Cleveland Clinic, 
you see people tend to become super specialized. Let's talk some statistics. How common are brain tumors and is one type more common than the other? Sure. So first of all, over 700,000 Americans uh, are living with a, with a brain tumor today and more than 84,000 people will have been diagnosed with a, a primary tumor in, in 2021. There are, I mentioned just some, some general categories, but there are up to hundred and different, 120 different types of, of brain tumors. So to your point, not, not all of them are, are the same. What are the most common brain tumors mm -hmm. that you see? Yeah. So the most common brain tumors that I see are meningiomas, which overwhelmingly tend to be benign, although not, you know, a small percentage of them can be more aggressive. I see tumors that involve the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland is known as the master gland. It's like, I, I, I tell people it's the, uh, it's the, it's the foreman on the work job that does work, but it also tells a lot of other glands in our bodies to, to do work. And so tumors can arise from there. Out of all of them, meningiomas are the most common. Uh, glioblastomas, which are tumors which arise inside the brain, uh, are the, the and they're, they're brain cancers, uh, quite aggressive brain cancers, which uh, are, are the second most common type of tumor. Are all tumors potentially deadly? Yeah, that's a great question. Even tumors that are benign, so ones that are not considered, certainly I think we, we would all understand that tumors that are cancers can be deadly. I, I don't think that that's hard to understand. But tumors that are benign can also be deadly if they grow in a very deep location and they start pushing on important tracks, uh, uh, nerve tracks. So for example, an area called the brainstem, which I tell patients, this is like your, your super highway, which connects your, your upper and lower brain to the entire rest of your body. If you start pushing that and the fibers that are a part of that start becoming blocked or, or squished, uh, the way that people walk, eat, talk can become affected. And likewise, treating them, especially ones that arise quite deep and that are perhaps uh, really stuck to, to that area, even though they may be benign, they can lead to somebody having a shortened life expectancy. Or even, even some of the treatments have to be very well carefully thought of uh, because being overly aggressive um, or simply having a, a, a complication that, that can happen can result in somebody living less. So I would guess another misconception then is about symptoms. I mean, you know that my symptoms never correlated with a brain tumor. I, <clears throat> I had what I thought was eye swelling and eye tearing constantly. I thought I had severe allergies. So never in a million years would I think I had a brain tumor. But can you discuss the variety of symptoms and when should people go see a doctor? You mean, you mean the allergy medication didn't work for you, huh, no. Monica? No, <laughs> I couldn't figure out why. No, yeah, that's, and, and thank goodness for my allergist who told me, you know, allergies don't happen in one eye, you know, so that's how I ended up in your office. 
the funny thing about that is, for example, with meningioma is something that, that, the, the, the tumor that, that we tackle together and that we continue to, to monitor. If you Google meningioma, you're going to find every symptom under the sun that's there. But the way that I explain it to patients, and this is why it's, it's sometimes a little complicated to, to, to research, do your homework, but without having any context behind it. With meningiomas, it's all, it's like real estate. It's location, location, location. So in certain areas, I would expect someone to develop vision problems, even with a small tumor. In other areas, I would never expect vision problems, but may expect hearing to be affected or, or the way that, that swallowing happens or, or perhaps some weakness. And just as you wouldn't expect uh, to, for your, your, your house to need uh, hurricane insurance or, or to be damaged by a hurricane, if you don't live near the, the, the coast, um, the same is true with meningiomas, that there are certain symptoms that you just simply would never expect, even if they would grow to a very large size. And this is where we, as, as physicians, help, um, help our patients, um, guide them and help them understand what symptoms may arise when they, when they do have it. Um, now, a story that, that I hear quite a bit is a story that may be like yours. I, hey, I had my eyes tearing, I had allergies, the allergies aren't going away, or um, sometimes people get their head scanned and they, for headaches or they were in a car accident. So these are all common reasons which we, which we now find them. But that context has to be weighed out in, in terms of what is found, uh, whether it's even related or not. So are a lot of brain tumors found by accident? Like mine, you know, I had a CT scan to rule out what they thought was a thyroid condition. So is it typical that you find a brain tumor because you're looking for something else or trying to rule something else out? I think that, th I, I think that it really depends on, on the type. So for example, if something grows really slowly, then sometimes people don't pay any attention to, to symptoms they may be having. And, and even some of the symptoms that may develop may, may, may look like something else may look like allergy problems may look like, uh, uh, I've, I've, I, I've had other patients that, uh, with very large meningiomas that affected the frontal lobes where they thought, okay, I'm, I'm in my seventies. I'm starting to, to, uh, lose my memory. Uh, maybe get a little grouchier, uh, a little less organized. And yes, of course, that can be something that can be associated with dementia or aging, but it can also be associated with, with benign tumors that are growing slowly and really affecting the way that, that people's thought process works. Cancerous tumors, on the other hand, I'll say, tend to be, tend to present a little differently. You know, for example, they, they, uh, uh, a person can have a seizure or a sudden onset problem with, with uh, speech um, in, in a course that's relatively shorter because they're, they're, they grow faster. It's interesting you say that because after I was diagnosed, when I looked back, I think I had far more symptoms than I realized. 
um, especially with, you know, emotion, because mine was in my left, you know, hemisphere frontal cortex. I thought, you know, I was having memory issues. I was having um, some other things, but everything I had, it was easily written off as something else. The problem is you're not busy, right? You're not, it's not like you're, you're, you're not a busy person. You're super busy, right? So, and when we're super busy, you know, we're going to be sometimes forgetful or stress or I'm not sleeping well. All of those things can also be reasons. Yeah. Everything was so easily written off. And, and that's, and that's the thing with, you know, I tell people, you know, if you're having a headache that's lasting longer than a week, you need to get to your doctor. Um, are there any other obvious symptoms that, or maybe not so obvious symptoms that people, if they notice that are, you know, a symptom that is prolonged, it's not going away, maybe it's getting worse, but then it gets better. Is there anything that, you know, should be that red flag? Obviously, if you, if you're having a seizure, that's, you know, we understand that, but with meningiomas, they're sneaky. And so is there anything you would suggest like, Hey, you know what? You should go get this checked if you're experiencing X, Y, or Z. The challenging thing with answering that question is that there's so many different symptoms that, that, that can show up, whether it's vision issues, whether it's memory issues, sometimes if it, particularly with pituitary tumors, people can become very fatigued um, have changes in, in heat or cold intolerance, for example. I think the important thing is maybe a couple, a, a couple messages that I would give is first of all, if you're having symptoms that are just persistent, that you shouldn't ignore them, which is what you were saying. You know, if you're having headaches and they're just new and I don't normally have headaches, they're not going away, probably means that somebody should evaluate you. And then the second thing is because not everybody's in tune to thinking there's a, a, a tumor in your head and with certain things, it, it may not be the most common thing. You know, if you go in and your complaint is fatigue or your concern is fatigue, the first thing you're going to, that that's not going to happen is to get your head scanned, right? They're, they're going to check some blood work and, and look at your thyroid and some other things. Um, but if in the end things aren't just checking out to be empowered, you know, for patients to be empowered to say, look, are there other areas that we're that, that, that we need to look at? You know, do we need to look at my head, uh, uh, for example, as a as a potential cause? I heard I heard this uh, might be a, a possible area. You know, I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up because I was one of those patients who for, you know, really the first time was my own best advocate because I was having this problem for over two years, I kept, you know, I saw my allergist every month for my allergy shots. And I, you know, would bring up to her, hey, is this is getting worse? Is there anything stronger? And, you know, if you don't open your mouth, you really do have to say something. And, and you know, in most cases, not everyone's gonna be diagnosed with a brain tumor, but, you know, you really do need to, to check things out. And one of the things that I would recommend not doing is uh, just jumping on the internet and searching for whatever. I was, I'm fortunate, I'm the health reporter. I actually knew where to go and what to look for. I knew I had a mask behind my left eye. I didn't know what it was, but 
I knew where to go and start looking for information. But I remember sitting in the uh, the office with you or the exam room for the first time. And the first thing out of my husband's mouth was I told her not to Google. And you know what? He's not wrong. Um, so not everybody is a health reporter, but can you talk about the the advantages and and the dangers of just jumping on the internet and trying to get the information you think you need? Absolutely. And you know, I'm 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 both a physician and surgeon, but I'm also a, a person, right? So you know, if I've had anything for myself or family members, and and it's perhaps a little bit out of my area, what are the things that I tend to do? I go look things up. I think it's a natural impulse for 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 everyone to do. So I'm not. What what I, what I don't do is I don't discourage people from. I don't say don't ignore the internet altogether because that's just not realistic. But I do think it is very important for people to, to any information that they get and how they process it for them to share and interact with their physician as a partner, because that physician can, can add that context to, to what it is. So I may tell you, yeah, I saw that you, uh, I know that you have the question about uh, urinary incontinence and meningiomas. This is completely not not uh, applicable to your case because the location of it is 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 not um, is not going to affect uh, that function for you. Um, and I th so I think it's 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 good when patients act as their own advocate. And a lot of times that, that moves things forward a little bit, but at the same time, if it's important for them to share those, those, those impressions with their, their doctor so that, that, that appropriate filter, uh, can be added to it. Um, the, I think it also gets complicated when people are so sure that this is the cause of what's going on with me. I read a lot about this rare disease, which occurs in one to every million people. And this is exactly what's happening with me. And, and, and it is very disappointing and sometimes really almost difficult to believe that when they, when people get an evaluation and then you start saying, actually, this is not what I think is, is going on with you because they're very sure of that. So again, I think that just to, to sum, I, summarize, I think that that information is great. I think knowing where reputable and sources of information, such as the American Brain Tumor Association, those, those are very helpful resources. And then to communicate with your doctor to, to really process that information. What about social media? Because that was one of the things I did was, you know, went on Facebook and of course there were a zillion brain tumor groups. And one of the most difficult things for me was I went into some of these groups and they were worldwide and they had over 5,000 people in these <clears throat> groups. And the first thing I did was search for my particular type of tumor, which was a sphenoid wing orbital meningioma. And there were only six comments about my particular type of tumor. And then I started reading everyone's experiences and it just scared me senseless because, you know, a lot of times I think people forget sometimes those groups are where people go to complain and every once in a while you'd get a happy story, but it was a lot to process. 
do you have any advice for people before, because this applies for any health condition. Um, I think these things are good, but I think it's really important to keep them in perspective. Do you have any insight that you can share about, you know, what people need to remember when they go to these sites? Out of curiosity, Monica, did you find information that in retrospect, knowing what you know today was helpful? No, I didn't. I wished I did. And and I have since. I'm still members of these groups and I still jump on every once in a while because I, I get a notification if somebody posts. And if it's something I might be able to help answer, I do will comment. Um, but I tend to try and make my comments a little more positive because, you know, I mean, let's be real. When you're told you have a brain tumor, your world stops. And absolutely, it, it's it's one of those things where you, you just try to figure out what's next. And the other thing I learned was there are so many different types of brain brain tumors and and surgeries for that matter. Um, so you, it's really hard to compare apples to apples um, in most cases. Even if even if two people have a GBM. You know, one could be in one location, another could be somewhere else, and the symptoms are different. So, can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, I, I can maybe just give uh, some some different perspectives, both positive and negative, to to that. I think one of the biggest things that 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 you point out is, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. I want to know if there's other people that are going through or have gone through what I've, what I'm going through now. It's, it's a, it's a whirlwind, right? You can speak to that experience better than, 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 than I can. And you just don't want to feel alone. You know, that you have somebody who has dedicated a certain amount of time in a consultation. And that probably wasn't enough time for all the, you know, all, all the things that are going through your head. And so it's totally natural to want to reach out and, and, and engage with other people who have, have been through what you're going through. It's complicated because you, you pointed out one of the big problems. Some of the biggest voices are some of the people who have gone through problematic courses, maybe really complicated courses and, and, and ones where the outcome was not good. And that can really affect uh, you know, uh, affect what your impression may be. You may be leaning towards surgery. You may be with somebody who is, who has a lot of experience and have, may, may have discussed the, the risks and benefits of treatment. And then all of a sudden be scared off. And little did you know that the, that the person that you're engaged with online went to somebody who doesn't deal with that problem very often, had a really bad outcome, is really impaired because of it and disappointed. And if that's the only perspective you get, that may impair your, your ability to make a, a good decision in that case. On the other hand, um, you know, this was sort of the, the pre-internet, uh, pre-Facebook group solution. Some of the things that we would do and still do is pair patients if they wish uh, with other patients who have been through similar problems, I can walk them through, you know, what the process is like, what it's like the day of surgery, and there are various support groups as well. So I, I think, unfortunately, you know, there's no 
exact filter to say this Facebook group is, is good and this one maybe not as good. For certain rare tumors, take, take chordomas, for example. Chordoma is a very rare tumor. Uh, and there are, uh, you know, the Chordoma Foundation is an excellent resource to help guide patients uh, through that. And it's, it was started by a patient and it's a more formal uh, foundation um, but that is a, they, they have uh, sort of well thought out resources for, you know, for, uh, for people. So, but it's, it's really tough because so many people are on social media. So many people are looking for, to make sure they're not alone as I'm sure you were, right? Yeah. Initially I'll tell you, you know, when I went public with my diagnosis, um, you know, and especially even, even now I just had a call last week, um, when people are diagnosed now i'm that i'm i'm a resource so they'll i'll get emails and i'll get phone calls from people and one thing i learned is i don't share my particular type of tumor story if you will what mm -hmm. i found was most useful was what to expect when you're in the hospital what to mm -hmm. expect from you know the surgery um, I can't speak to everyone's like outcome but I can tell you hey look unless you pass PT and OT they're not gonna let you out you know and and kind of give people um, at least a little insight as to what to expect after surgery and there's always going to be before brain tumor and after brain tumor your life completely changes no matter how you look at it. It sounds like you've evolved in, in, in how you are in, in terms of giving your perspective and counseling as a pseudo lay person, I'll say, because obviously your job is a, is as a medical reporter, but. But I, I think it's important for people to, to know like, Hey, these are things you can expect. Like my hair loss, you know, we never discussed that. I had no idea. I thought, you know, the, the big thing was you weren't going to shave my head. That was awesome. <laughs> you know, but little did I know that just head trauma, you know, any kind of head trauma can cause hair loss. And that was something, you know, I shared with a lot of people, wasn't expecting it to happen. Um, some, and that's the, the issue is that it does happen in some people, but it doesn't happen in everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important for people to understand that, hey, just be prepared. If this happens, this is, you know, what you can do. And if it doesn't happen, you know, good for you. <laughs> so um, I think I think those are, you know, other things that people need to keep in mind. Um, let's move on to surgeries. You sure. you perform a bunch of different types of surgeries. And I still tell people, you know, I had a craniotomy, which is like, I'm guessing one of the most invasive types of surgeries that you would do. I'm still proud of the fact I wore out two six millimeter drill bits because you <laughs> into my skull. In fact, I wanted to go to Home Depot and find two six millimeter drill bits and like, you know, mount put them on them. the wall. Yeah, put them on my desk or something as a as a as a you know paperweight or something. But um, kind of talk to me about you know not everybody has to undergo the type of surgery I did for for meningioma. Can you talk about the different types of surgeries and how do you know what's better for one and not the other? Sure, happy to to cover that. So a craniotomy just means making 
an opening in the in the skull and a traditional craniotomy uh, or traditionally craniotomies have been bigger right and as you alluded to we would start out by shaving somebody's head right half of their head and then and then making these big openings but as time has gone on we've learned to be less and less invasive the most important thing in in deciding with options that are bigger, let's say, versus smaller or quote unquote less invasive is, can we still accomplish the same goal as safely and as completely? And if the answer is no, then we should probably be doing something, you know, more, more open or more extensive. There are several techniques that have really uh, evolved over the last, uh, I would say 15 to 20 years, and even significantly over the last uh, five to 10 years. Uh, we, you know, procedures, there's, there's certain tumors that are very accessible by going through somebody's nostrils. And the technology has evolved amazingly in this area. So we can insert little, almost like little telescopes called endoscopes into the nose. And I, I do a lot of these procedures, for example, with my with my uh, rhinology colleagues. And we can take tumors out that are sitting underneath the brain or even accessing things like uh, some spinal deformity that is now pushing on uh, the upper spinal cord or the brainstem and causing somebody to become weak all by going through, through the nose in a way that saves you from any incisions or, or scars on the outside. There are uh, ones that fall into the category of craniotomies, but are less invasive. So we'll do incisions in someone's eyebrow or eyelid even. And some of those scars are very difficult to see. The, the craniotomy in those cases may be, uh, may be less than an inch, you know, or a, a couple centimeters, and we can still access what we need to. For some deep, deeper areas, uh, looking at, looking at a either tumors inside the brain itself or just deep, uh, we now use, uh, can use tubes, for example, these, these small tubes, which uh, the idea is that they'll split in between some of the fibers to minimally traumatize the, the brain tissue and be able to uh, look around um, and, and take out these, these very deep tumors that lie inside the brain. And some of those are, are amazing that people can be ready to go home even the next day from what would have been required, you know, a seven day stay, uh, extended rehab. And now, you know, even though we're going through the, some of the brain tissue, just very minimally disruptive. Um, so lots of exciting technology, laser treating tumors with, with laser uh, lasers, for example, where we just insert a little cannula like some of my colleagues do is, is, is um, those are all techniques that can be used, but again, they're tailored to each different situation. So um, in the end, can we accomplish the same goal by being less invasive or, or perhaps accomplish it better by being less invasive? If the answer is yes, then those techniques are great. So talk to me about why are women more prone to meningioma and why is gender actually a factor that's being studied relating to brain tumors in general sure well it's 
it's not hard to, to say that men and women are, are different, right? We know that. Um, with meningiomas, it's been thought that there is some hormonal implication or, or something about the, the, the environment that changes uh, your, your likelihood to get one of these tumors. Um, hormones, particularly progesterone and estrogen, uh, are obviously in higher amounts in women. And do those play a factor? The answer is likely yes. But what is the exact factor? This is where it gets tricky and it's hard to, to answer this question. I get, an, I, I get asked questions, for example, um, okay, I've been diagnosed with a meningioma. I am on hormone replacement therapy. What should I do with this? And we don't have good great data, I would say, you know, for a while I was, uh, there was, there were certain combinations of, of hormonal replacement therapy that were suggested to play more of a role in, in growth. And then other data came out and it's been refuted. So we don't entirely fully understand the why that, that that's the case. We're starting to learn in, in some of the brain cancers. And this is, for example, work that, that Dr. Justin Lathia uh, here at the clinic is, is looking at, um, sex differences in glioblastoma and just starting to begin to understand that there might be some differences in that tumor environment or with in somebody, the way somebody's immune system is working that may be different between men and women. Um, this may be, uh, something also at play within, within meningiomas, but but we really need to do more research in these areas to figure out the why. And obviously when you understand the why, then, then you can start acting upon them. I know when you and I sat down and did our surgical plan um, mm -hmm. to come up with how we were gonna deal with my tumor, um, I knew, I think I knew from the very beginning that you weren't gonna be able to get all of it, that mm -hmm. I was going to have residual tumor left. How do you determine what's going to be a problem tumor that will require future treatment? Because not all of them, I guess when people think of tumors, they automatically think they're just these perfect little golf ball things that <laughs> are stuck in your head. And unfortunately, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be nice that if they were, <laughs> yeah, I wish mine was, that's for sure. You know, it would have been a lot easier, but uh, mine was just a hot mess of a pancake, you know, like splattered batter, I guess. But, um, how how do you how do you know ahead of time is it just from imaging and how do you determine like what your um, surgical plan and then aftercare plan would be sure so i think it's all the, the the surrounding structures and how the tumor is interacting with those structures if it's if it's something that's around the brain like in your case you know we look at the important things that we want to make sure that we preserve your vision your ability to move your eye well. Those are probably the most important things that we considered in, in, in a case like yours. And if I look at something on imaging and there's a part of the tumor that that is gonna to be too high risk because either you'll lose your vision or it can we can affect a, a critical artery that could lead to a stroke, particularly with something that is not cancerous. And, and we also have some, some backup uh, treatment options like radiation, then we will just plan and understand ahead of time 
that we need to leave, leave a little bit of tumor behind. If it's uh, even with brain cancers, I think that the same amount of planning goes, goes into those cases. If a brain cancer is involving somebody's speech area, and you know that ahead of time, but their speech is still pretty good, then it may be something that, that uh, either the, the, the surgeon decides to do the, the surgery awake so that they can in real time map somebody's speech, or they will just upfront understand that the goal will be to get most of the tumor, but not all the tumor uh, necessarily to avoid causing a new major problem uh, that can dramatically impact somebody's quality of life. So I think it's just weighing out what structures are around the area in question and how they would impact somebody's quality of life. And is that going to change the overall outcome uh, and at what cost? What is CRISPR? One of the hot topics um, right now is is in, in immunotherapy, looking at somebody's immune system to target the way that, that uh, tumors are, are, are treated. CRISPR uh, is, is a technique which looks, it, it, it's a, a, a gene editing technique or sort of a, a genetic engineering uh, technique, if you will, that uses small pieces of, of, uh, of, of, of DNA or RNA uh, to uh, cause edits into the in, into the the system and be able to target uh, specific cells. So it's a, it's one of the the hot topics uh, within immunotherapy and and using the the patient's genetic system to to work to target specific tumor cells. So what you're saying is you could like for lack of a better term, take out some of my blood, get my DNA and turn my DNA by genetically altering it, turn it back into a warrior to go in and get rid of my tumor. Yeah. I think that this is, this has been something that, that as we move more to more personalized medicine. So for example, not just, uh, using a tool like chemotherapy, for example, traditional chemotherapy affects all cells. Right, but if we can understand more things about your specific tumor, maybe some tumor s signatures that are within your blood, and uh, tailor the, the 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 treatment so that they only attack the 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 tumor cells themselves, uh, that would be that would be amazing, right? And that's that's um, I think you know, several years back that, that, that sounded like a, a pipeline dream. But I, I think that as, you know, scientists, for example, like, like Dr. Lathia, you know, and, and for example, uh, our group partnering with, with, with people like this. So taking tumor tissue and maybe blood um, from patients who, who have um, given their consent to be, to, for us to, to, to study their tumors in more detail. And then, uh, having scientists really look at this, this is the, we're getting closer and closer to realities um, where where we're we're going to be able to to do this for hopefully most tumors um, that that people have. It was really important for me to be part of your clinical trials. 
Um, so yeah, I donated my tumor. I don't know what you ended up doing with it. I'm hoping it went to this particular research. Um, but you are also doing something with AI. Can you talk about your particular research, what, what it is, what you're doing and what you hope to accomplish? Sure. So our AI or artificial intelligence is, is one of those other hot topics that, that everybody is looking at. So, you know, harnessing, um, artificial intelligence to answer certain questions. In our case, uh, one of the things that I think it'd be helpful up front, so you is to understand as much of the can uh, as much as we can about the tumor even before we go in and do surgery or radiation on a tumor. So for in meningiomas, for example, we know that most of them are benign. Uh, a smaller chunk of them are, are atypical or a little bit more aggressive behaving and a very small set are cancers. Wouldn't it be nice if we could know all of that information without having had to open somebody's head up and get the tissue? And perhaps would that change the way that, that we would treat that, that, that patient? Would, would we look at the role of surgery in, in radiation or timing of those things in the same way that we do today? I think, I think the obvious answer is probably no. The more information that we have about a, a tumor ahead of time, the, the, we will use the, the, the tools that we currently have and perhaps develop some new tools to treat that a little bit differently than, than we would have ahead of time. Um, where AI comes in, for example, with meningiomas in, is in predicting some of those aspects. So can we put in all of these radiological aspects that we know are associated with higher grade tumors or more aggressive tumors, swelling around the brain, uh, some different signal characteristics on the MRI scan, and at least come up with better probabilities of, of understanding, or maybe, maybe instead of it being just a, oh yeah, we have a a 70% chance that, that we know the answer here. Can we get up to, to 90, 95 or higher percentage that we know more and more information about those tumors? That requires us to have a large library of patients who have had tumors like you, right? And have their tumor tissue and have the information about, uh, about what, the, what their imaging characteristics looked like and what their clinical course was and what their pathology showed and then putting all that information and using the power of artificial intelligence to now look at that in a more predictive way. From the research standpoint, mm -hmm. how soon, I mean, because how much has changed in the last decade or even 20 years? It, from my perspective, it doesn't seem like much has changed, especially re relating to brain tumors, you know, I remember covering when gamma knife surgery started, or, mm -hmm. you know, um, so what, what do you see on the horizon? What's the next new best thing? I think, um, so perhaps I see it a little bit differently. Cause when I, when I was in medical school, I remember learning about brain tumors in one way and take glioblastoma as an example, uh, glioblastoma is a brain cancer, the way it was diagnosed is literally by the pathologist looking under the microscope and doing some special stains. And based on these collection of patterns, they would make a diagnosis of, of, of glioblastoma. That tumor is not diagnosed that way anymore. 
in fact, some of the genetic changes uh, are a part of the World Health Organization criteria and how to differentiate some of those uh, uh, tumors, that, some gliomas versus uh, a, a more aggressive variant, you know, as a glioblastoma, for example. Within meningiomas, that's, we're just on the cusp of that right now. We have been at a point where the diagnosis is purely made based on patterns uh, that are seen on under a microscope, but now there are genetic changes that are being better understood that are going to be part of the next uh, update on World Health Organization guidelines. So, um, and, and that, that will help us predict their behavior even better than, than we are today. So I think that that's one of those things that, that that's on the, the horizon. But with harnessing, for example, whether it's artificial intelligence for understanding imaging characteristics better, uh, whether it's techniques like CRISPR and genetic engineering on how to, how to target cells more specifically, I, I think that this is about the most exciting time that that there's been, you know, in 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 recent memory, uh, in combining technology, science, and the ability to treat patients with with brain tumors in the best way. Since we're still in the midst of a pandemic, has the pandemic impacted you, or you know, how treatments have gone? Because it was, you know, difficult for people to get into a hospital, and and where are things now, or what have you learned from it? Yeah, I think there's, there's no question the pandemic affected all of us, right? <laughs> um, with brain tumors, patients with, with, generally speaking, patients with brain tumors that had symptoms, at least in our state in Ohio, fell into the category of folks that, 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 that could and should be treated sooner regardless. There were some scary times, though. For example, with the, the procedures that we do through the nose, um, that was one of the highest risk procedures that because it was thought that when you go in and you stir things up in, in the nasal passageway that there's a lot of viral particles and um, some initial uh, reports uh, were coming out, um, you know, actually out of, out of China that you know, 15 people may have been infected in the operating room that, that, you know, where somebody had this procedure and that scared everyone. But then later on, it was found that actually only two of those people were actually in the, in the operating room. And many of those other people didn't have proper uh, personal protective equipment when they were interacting with, with the patient. So I, it, one of the things that, that, that we learned in, in dealing with that pandemic was uh, that you still have to you still have to come down to the scientific rigor and and questioning each situation because a, something which sounds like it makes sense can be just a sensationalist thing that goes that spreads like water, wildfire and scares everybody and may prevent people from even getting a, a particular procedure because they think it's at, at uh, um, incredibly high risk when the reality may not be as, as, 
as it seems initially. I mean, we still treated patients with with brain tumors during during the pandemic. Um, you know, they weren't uh, particularly ones with uh, that were more aggressive behaving. They couldn't wait. It wasn't like you were getting your knee replaced and you can still get around and maybe just wait a little while longer. But um, I mean, we did have to adapt and, and learn about things that were outside of our field in a quick manner to determine how to still care for patients within our own field. Um, so the telehealth appointments are going to stay. Ah, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, I uh, didn't even touch on that. Telehealth is for brain tumors is wonderful. There are so many things that we can evaluate about how a patient functions by seeing them, by seeing how they smile, how they close their eyes, how they're able to stick their tongue out, how they're able to walk around without them stepping foot in the office. It also increased access, you know, for a period of time, if somebody was in the upper peninsula of Michigan and they had been diagnosed with a brain tumor, they had immediate access to somebody who does this type of tumor all the time. This is also uh, going to be something that I think our, 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 our state and our federal governments are going to have to take a look at because for uh, the, you know, an evaluation like that was not permitted legally. Uh, as a new patient via telehealth. Uh, and during the pandemic that was suspended, those, those limitations were suspended. Now we've sort of reverted back like, okay, if I'm not licensed to practice in, in Michigan, I can't see a, or Montana, I can't see any patients from there. But I do think that, that some of our laws are going to need updating, right? Because, uh, Telehealth has certainly increased access or has the ability to increase access to patients who need care in uh, like patients with brain tumors uh, without having to travel 700 miles uh, for just a, you know, a, a 30 minute visit um, to find out that we're going to watch. I know from from Mar from my perspective, even before the pandemic happened, um, it was critical for me when I, I was undergoing some pretty severe swelling and I was just able to hold my phone up and FaceTime with your nurse and she was able to see me and decide yes you need to come in or no you don't and just that simple of a you know literally a two-minute FaceTime was so valuable um, and and calming you know where she she was able to see it and she was able to say no that's normal or you know in my case, it was it was fine. I didn't have to run downtown to go see you. One of the funny things related to uh, to telehealth and something that I think particularly patients with brain tumors uh, would think is if I don't see my doctor in person, like how am I going to establish this relationship? The funny thing is when patients saw us by telehealth, they were seeing our face. They were seeing our, our emotions. Empathy is much easier to communicate when you're seeing somebody's, you know, whole face. And ironically in the clinic, uh, we were all masked and it's a little bit harder to, 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 to com communicate some of those emotions. If all you're seeing is somebody's eyes. Um, so things that we initially thought were impossible to make a meaningful relationship 
ended up being completely possible uh, nonetheless. So, Why should the average person care about brain health and brain tumors? I think caring about their, their brain health and, and caring about brain tumors is, you know, brain health overall is super important. It's who we are as a person. It's one of the biggest differences in, in, in my field versus some of, some of the other fields. You know, if, if you have a bad knee, then it's harder for you to get to around, but fundamentally you're the same person. If you have a problem in your brain space um, and it's affecting critical neurological functions, that can potentially impact who you are as a person or how you really experience life. If you can't see, you know, if you can't, uh, if you're not remembering things uh, appropriately and, and to know that, that yes, brain tumors can certainly be one of those causes, but there can also be big wins and, and improvements in quality of life if they're addressed. And of course, if they're not addressed, a progressive worsening in quality of life. Well, I can attest to my, my brain tumor made me a much more grateful person that uh, I, I live in a town that I had such amazing access to healthcare and really experienced surgeons. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, obviously be careful when you go to the internet, but I, mm -hmm. at the end of this, I always want to say um, there are websites people should go to that has legitimate information. So there's no way in health you want to Google just anything. If you had a website, where would you direct people? So for brain tumors, a natural starter is uh, the American Brain Tumor Association. You know, they have really a lot of, uh, inf of high quality, reliable information on a great variety of, of brain tumors. I think that other institutions, for example, like the Cleveland Clinic has a lot of educational resources. Um, the Mayo Clinic does too. You know, I think institutions that are, that are reputable um, are a good place to start. I would be very careful uh, you know, starting in, in the, just with a single person that who you don't know and starting with their experience and basing all of your information and decisions based on the interaction. Well, I think it's good and important for, for people to be connected and, and people to have, um, you know, others to lean on, make sure that that's placed in, in, in proper context with, with reputable sources and also with assistance for of your uh, physicians who have expertise in that area. And from personal experience, I can't agree with you more. <laughs> Dr. Pablo Racinos, thank you so much for uh, being part of this. This was really, really educational, informative, and valuable. Thanks so much for having me, Monica. Please find me on Twitter and Instagram at Monica Robbins. Catch up on health news and future podcasts on my Facebook page, Monica Robbins WKYC. Video podcasts are uploaded to my YouTube channel. Just search Monica Robbins and please subscribe too. Keep up to date on all of your new sports and weather on WKYC.com and the WKYC YouTube channel, and please follow the WKYC social media accounts as well. Random acts of kindness are good for your soul. Practice them daily. I'm Monica Robbins. Until next time, have a healthy week. Thanks for listening to Health Yeah! with Monica Robbins from WKYC Studios.
Subscribe now so you never miss an update. And find more on everything you heard here on WKYC.com and on the WKYC app.